this morning is another Read the Bible Together Sunday. At the beginning of 2019, we began to gradually read through the whole Bible together as a church, book by book. And this morning is actually our 15th RBT sermon and our 14th book of the Bible. And this month, we're reading the book of Leviticus. And to help us this morning, we're going to be taking a bird's eye view of this book to help us get our bearings. Kids, there are activity sheets for you to do this morning, including a brand new memory verse for you to colour in as you listen along. For everyone else, assuming you got the church email yesterday, there are some sermon notes that you can print or call up on your screen. And I'd especially recommend having those to hand this morning. I think they're going to prove to be really useful as we work through this book. But, uh, of course, our greatest help is always from God himself. So let's begin together in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can join together online this morning. We thank you that wherever we are, you are with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Please speak to us again through your word today. Help us, Lord, to be attentive and eager to hear you speak Help us to grow in our understanding and appreciation of the book of Leviticus this morning. And please help us to see the person and work of your son in its pages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, where do we start uh, in a sermon on Leviticus? Leviticus is not an easy book. Let's start there. I wonder how many of us at one time or another have uh, attempted to read through the Bible from cover to cover, but have given up somewhere along the way. And if that's the case, I wonder how many of us gave up just after starting the book of Leviticus. It's a difficult book. One reason it's difficult is that it's different from everything that's come before. Unlike Genesis and Exodus, it doesn't have a great multitude of characters and a long line of dramatic events. Instead, it's got a lot of fine detail about various sacrifices and rituals that Israel were to perform. That's the reason, the first reason, uh, I think we find it difficult because it's so different. The other and more significant reason we often find Leviticus difficult, I think, is because we often miss what the book is really about. It's easy to quickly become bogged down in the fine details and miss seeing the big picture, which is a shame because the big picture message of Leviticus is really, really good. Perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament, this is a book about how God and man can dwell together. And God and man dwelling together is a really good thing. The Bible tells us that human beings were made to live with God. Being with God is our natural habitat. It's where we were always meant to be. It's where God made us to thrive and be happy and be whole. Just two books back in Genesis chapter one, it's, we, we, you can see there where the man and the woman lived every moment of every day in the presence of God. And it was perfect. But they soon rebelled and had to be banished from God's presence. And as a result, everything went wrong. But God didn't give up on humanity. His desire from the moment the curse fell was to make a way for God and man to live together again. 
And so he set in motion a great rescue plan. Beginning in Genesis 12, God chose one family through whom he would ultimately rescue all the nations of the earth and bring people back into a relationship with him. In the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God brings his chosen family out of slavery in Egypt and makes a covenant with them, an agreement that he would be their God and they would be his people, and that through the building of something called the tabernacle, a very special tent, he would actually dwell in their midst. And in the very last chapter of Exodus, which we did way, way back in RBT, God's glorious divine presence finally comes down and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. It's an awe-inspiring moment, as if the curse of sin has been finally lifted away so that man and God can live together again. Except even Moses is not allowed to enter the tent. He can't go in. And it's on that cliffhanger moment that the book of Exodus comes to an end and the book of Leviticus begins. The problem actually is emphasized right in the very first verse of Leviticus, where the Lord calls to Moses and speaks to him from the tent. The glory of the Lord is now there in the tent, but Moses and all the people are stuck outside. They can't go in. It's too dangerous which raises a really important question. If human beings were made to live with God, and if God's presence is so very good, why is it so dangerous for people to get close to him? The simple answer is because God is holy and the people are not. Think of it this way, uh, say, say the guys at the Bible Project. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. Something else we see in Leviticus is that if God is, if God is holy, then the space around God's presence is holy too. It's like his holiness radiates out from him. It can't be contained. It fills the space around him with his goodness, his life, his purity and his justice. And so if human beings want to live in God's holy presence, if they want to bask in his goodness like Israel do, then they need their sin to be dealt with. They need to become holy. And that is what the book of Leviticus is about. It's about how sinful people can be made holy so that they can live in the presence of God and bask in his goodness. That's the big picture. The next question we've got to ask is, how is this book laid out and designed? Um, and I have to say, coming to see how this book is structured and designed is what has helped me most over the last few weeks as I've been reading Leviticus. In fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that grasping the overall design of the book, how it fits together, has really transformed my understanding and enjoyment of it. Two weeks ago, I respected the book of Leviticus. Now I really do love it. 
And I got to give, give credit, as I often do, to the Bible Project uh, online and their video overview of Leviticus. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend that you watch it sometime this month. And I'm borrowing a lot of my headings this morning from them. Also, if you're looking for a brief commentary on Leviticus, the study notes in the Gospel Transformation Bible are wonderful and repeatedly show how every single chapter points to Jesus. So I really recommend looking at those. But anyway, uh, the book's design. I've already said that this book is about solving the people's holiness problem and its solution uh, involves three main elements, three things that God has given to Israel to enable them to live in his presence. Rituals, priests and purity. Now, like many things in the Old Testament, this book has got a really uh, amazing symmetry to it. It divides into seven main sections, not counting the last two chapters, which are, are kind of just a conclusion. Seven main sections and each of the three solutions is explored in two sections of the book. Now, I've tried to represent this in the um, triangle uh, on the handout. So have a look at that. See if you can uh, follow along. That might be helpful to kind of see it pictorially like that. Um, the outermost sections of the book, chapters 1 to 7 and 23 to 25, focus on the rituals, the repeated ceremonies that the people must perform in order to live so close to God. The next two sections in are about the role of the priests who act as mediators between God and the people. Then inside of those are two sections on purity, uh, chapters 11 to 15 and 18 to 20. And then right in the very middle of the book, at the pinnacle, at the, the heart of it all, is something called the Day of Atonement, chapters 16 and 17. So that's all there uh, in that picture of that triangle. And so there's this mirror image design to the book. But there's also a difference between the first half the first time those themes come up, and the second half, which you'll see labelled along the outside edges of that diagram. The first half of the book, the first time those elements of ritual, priests and purity are talked about, the, the focus is on how to approach God. It's about atoning for sin through the shedding of blood, all of which culminates in the Day of Atonement. The second half of the book, the second time each of those elements of rituals, priests, and purity are mentioned, the emphasis is not on approaching God anymore, but on living in the presence of God, on living holy lives in the presence of God. Okay, so why am I spending all this time talking about how it's laid out? Uh, because having this structure in mind, when you read it, I think will make all the difference in the world. Uh, it's like the difference between drop, being dropped into some unknown foreign city where you don't know where you are uh, and you're lost and being dropped there with a compass and a map and a newfound confidence to explore. And so I really hope this will change the way that we read this book this month. Okay, well, let's, let's jump into it then. Let's explore the book in a bit more detail, working through each of those pairs, rituals, priests and purity before we hit the high point, the pinnacle in the middle of the book. The first section, chapters one to seven, is about ritual sacrifices. 
In it, God lays out the five main sacrifices that the people need to offer. If you've got headings in your Bible, you'll see these helpfully uh, and sort of perhaps in bold laid out there. Two of them, the grain offering and the peace offering, are ways to express gratitude to God. They involve giving back a portion of what God has already given to them. They're ways for people to say thank you to God. The other three, the burnt offering, uh, the sin offerings and the guilt offerings are ways of saying sorry to God. And all three of these involve the sacrifice of an animal. I've included as well a couple of diagrams in the handouts. Uh, I know some people appreciate pictures. Um, this is of the tabernacle and its courtyard. And I think this could be really helpful for just picturing what's going on as you read through Leviticus and read some of the instructions there. Now, two of the most important words in Leviticus are atone and atonement. Together, they appear 53 times in this book, more than uh, in any other book in the Old Testament. In English, the word atonement is a combination of three words, at one month, and it refers to reconciliation, two parties or people being brought together, becoming at one with each other. In the Bible, atonement refers to something even more specific, to the central thing that needs to happen in order for a person to be reconciled to God. And that is the taking away of our sin. It's what needs to happen. God wants to live with his people. God delights to forgive his people, but he's also passionately committed to punishing sin because sin deserves death. So he provides a way for the life of an animal to be the sacrificed in the place of the person who has sinned. As he says, just looking ahead in chapter 17, verse 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So each time a person brings their sacrifice to the courtyard around the tabernacle, before they hand it to the priest, they're told to lay their hands on the head of the animal. And by doing this, they're identifying themselves with the animal as, as if to say, what is about to happen to this animal should really happen to me because of my sins. They deserve to die, but the animal dies instead. And so their sin is atoned for. The person is forgiven and lives. Listen to Mark Dever. Perhaps this whole process shocks you. But Leviticus and every other book of the Bible clearly teach that we too deserve death for our actions. Our righteousness has failed us and we too need a sacrificial substitute. We have sinned against God by doing what we want rather than what he wants. And so we should mourn for our sins and repent of them. We should turn from our sins and to God, placing our trust in the sacrifice for sins that God has offered us in Jesus Christ. Now, we'll come back to Jesus uh, in a bit. But for now, there's one more thing to notice in this first section. And that is just how often God's people need to offer sacrifices, how often God's Old Testament people need to offer sacrifices. They were to be a part of their everyday life, a daily reminder of just what it costs for sinners to live up close and personal 
with God. So that's the first section on rituals, chapters one to seven, the ritual sacrifices. The second section on rituals towards the end of the book, chapters 23 to 25, is all about ritual feasts and festivals, repeated feasts and festivals. These are like annual dates on the calendar, like public holidays for Israel to help them remember who God is and what he's done. Chapter 23 describes seven annual feasts that they're to celebrate together with each of these special holidays, reminding them of a different part of the story of how God had redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them to be his special covenant people. There's the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths. Chapter 24 then shows a contrast to these repeated feasts by outlining the consequences for those who blaspheme God's name or who murder a fellow human being, someone who's made in the image of God. In each case, these are ultimately crimes of forgetting who God is and what he's done, forgetting him, not honouring him, and the penalty for each of them is death. Chapter 25 then builds a few more regular events into Israel's calendar that this time remind them not so much how they ought to treat God and relate to God, but how they ought to relate to each other with a special emphasis on showing justice and mercy to the poor and the oppressed. And that, those two sections, is the first part of God's solution to Israel's holiness problem. Ritual sacrifices that allow them to approach God and ritual feasts and festivals that help them live holy lives for God by remembering who he is and what he's done. The second part of the solution in the book of Leviticus is or has to do with priests. As I said earlier, entering directly into God's presence is a really dangerous thing to do. And so God appoints priests as special representatives who can enter his presence on behalf of the rest of the people. Chapters 8 to 10 are all about God's gift to his people of those priests. Chapter 8 describes their ordination ceremony. And one of the most noticeable things uh, in this chapter is just how much they need to put on protective gear. Because, of course, in and of themselves, they're no more holy than anyone else. They're still sinners. And so their ordination is rather like watching some firefighters suiting up, fixing on oxygen, oxygen tanks, uh, putting on protective gear so that they can venture forth into the hottest kind of blaze. But of course, it's not a literal heat that they're going to be getting up close to. It's something much more intense. It's the white hot holiness of God's glorious presence. And so it's not fire retardant clothing that they need to put on. It is more blood and sacrifice. After all of these preparations are then done in chapter eight, chapter nine is like the priest's very first day on the job. And it goes well. All the people gather around to watch Aaron and his sons make their first offering on the altar, which stands outside the tabernacle in the courtyard and chapter 9, verse 23, tells us that when they had done so, when they've made the sacrifice, 
the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Now, again, this might seem a bit weird to us because it's not how we approach God anymore. God has given us a far better way now. But for them, and arguably for God too, it was a wonderful moment in redemptive history. God was once again dwelling with the people that he loved and had redeemed. And all the people knew it. They saw it. They could actually see the glory of the Lord shining in their midst before them. The very fact, too, that God had provided them with priests, with mediators, was another demonstration of just how much God wanted to dwell with his people, how much he wanted to enjoy a close relationship with them. Every time the people saw a priest, they'd be reminded God is nearby and he wants to have a relationship with us. It, it's an amazing step forward in God's great rescue plan. But of course, it's not yet the perfect solution. Just as chapter 10 shows us, when two of Aaron's sons, their priests, uh, they try to enter into God's presence without following the, the rules and the regulations, the precautions that God has given to them. They just waltz right into the presence of God and are consumed by his holiness on the spot. The Bible Project guys say this, it's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence. It's pure goodness, but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. Now, in the matching priestly section in chapters 21 and 22, what we find are the qualifications for priests. Like everyone else, they're called to live holy lives. But because they especially serve as mediators between God and the people, because they work so closely to God's presence in the holy place, handling holy things, they're held to an even higher standard of moral and ritual holiness. One of the things I love about these uh, two sections on the priests is how often they highlight the need for a better priest, a better priest, a, a, the need for a perfect, sinless priest who has now come. His name is Jesus, the one to whom all these flawed priests in Leviticus were just a shadow and a pointer. Listen to these words from Hebrews 7, uh, verse 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, talking about Jesus now, holy and innocent. He didn't have to have any sacrifices made for him. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We don't need priests plural anymore because there is one perfect priestly mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. But back in Leviticus, for the time being, the priests are the second part of God's solution for his people's holiness problem. The third part of his solution has to do with purity. Chapters 11 to 15 are all about ritual purity that God requires of his Old Testament people. Chapters 18 to 20 are all about the moral purity that he requires of them. So 
Let's look at each of those in turn. The first section on ritual purity is, I think, perhaps the hardest one for us to really understand or get our heads around. In Leviticus, certain things are labelled as clean or unclean. Some things are pure and clean. Other things are unclean, impure. First of all, there are regulations about what they can and can't eat. So certain animals are clean and others are declared unclean. Eating an animal that's declared unclean will make the person eating it impure and unclean. And being unclean will then limit their ability to draw near to the presence of God, to be involved in what's going on in and around the tabernacle. Now, honestly, the, I don't think the text is clear about why certain animals are unclean or why touching or eating them makes a person unclean. But the overarching purpose behind the purity laws is clear. These things are symbols. They're living pictures that are in plain sight every day. And they remind Israel that belonging to God and having a relationship with him should affect every area of their lives. They are to be holy in every area of their lives, Leviticus 11, verse 45, because the God who dwells in their midst is holy. They're to be holy because he is holy. And they're reminded of this every time they think about what to eat. Now, after talking about food, God then outlines a number of other things that can also make the people ritually impure. They include skin diseases, touching mold or fungus, coming into contact with certain bodily fluids and touching a dead body. As the Bible Project helpfully points out, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol, they say, of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death, so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness because God's essence is life. One really important thing to keep in mind uh, throughout these chapters is that being impure or unclean wasn't actually something that was sinful or wrong. Often it was unavoidable and it was a temporary thing. You just wait it out a few days, maybe take a bath, offer a sacrifice, and you were clean again. What was wrong was casually drawing near to the presence of God when you were carrying these symbols of death and impurity on your body. Again, God gave Israel all of these symbols of cleanness and uncleanness to help them understand that they needed to be different if they were going to live with him. Their conscious efforts to be ritually pure each time they approach God would remind them of their need to be morally pure as they live their life in relationship with God. Which is what the second section on purity is all about over in chapters 18 to 20. It's a call to moral purity. Listen to what it says at the beginning of chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. 
And that phrase, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, is repeated again and again throughout chapters 18 to 20. Uh, kids, if you're still there and you're still listening at all, these are the very words that make up your memory verse this morning. God's people are to live differently to the nations around them, not to merit or earn a relationship with God, but precisely because they're already in a covenant relationship with him, precisely because he has already set his love upon them. He's redeemed them and he's made them his own, his special set apart people. And so in these three chapters, he calls them to sexual integrity, to pursuing justice and to caring for the poor and vulnerable, particularly not sacrificing children like many of the nations around them do. In summary, God says, chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what relevance do these sections on purity have for New Testament Christians like us? Well, the concepts of ritual purity and impurity are no longer in force. The New Testament tells us that multiple times. And that's because Jesus offers a far deeper cleansing to all who trust in him. He purifies our very souls from sin's dark stain. But we are still called, arguably even more so, to pursue moral purity in every area of our lives, to flee sexual immorality and idolatry, to pursue justice and the protection of the poor and the vulnerable, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, not to earn acceptance with God, but because we've already been brought near to him in Jesus. All of which brings us to the absolute highlight of the book of Leviticus, the center point, the pinnacle, the day of atonement. We've seen God's three solutions for dealing with his people's sin and making them holy. But clearly not every Israelite is going to get it right. Not every Israelite is going to follow these procedures to a T. They're not going to get it right every time. They're a really big nation now. And so a fair amount of sin is going to go unnoticed and undealt with. Hence the annual day of atonement. Up to now, the people have uh, been bringing their own sacrifices to the, tent, to, the, uh, to the tabernacle for their own personal sins. And they've just been bringing it up to the entrance of the tent where the priests would offer it on the altar that stood outside the tent. But on this one day of the year, the day of atonement, the high priest representing all the people, the whole nation, would enter into the very presence of God, behind the curtain in the tabernacle, into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And again, you can see where that is in the picture, the diagram on your handout. There in the most holy place, the high priest would offer, first of all, the blood of a bull to cover his own sins. Then he offered the blood of a goat in order to make atonement for the sins of all the people. The goat has died in their place as their substitute. Everyone else waits outside. No one else can see what he's doing in there, only God. And then the high priest takes a second goat, a live one. Chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it 
all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This goat is the scapegoat. And it's a powerful picture of God graciously removing their sin. Their sin is carried away by the scapegoat out into the wilderness, over the horizon, so that the people can go on living with God. The Day of Atonement is really the high point and the centre of God's solution for Israel's holiness problem. In these two goats, one of them pierced as a sacrifice. The other cast out of God's presence is God's gracious provision to cover all their sin. And yet, and yet, built right into it, writ large all over it by God himself, are reminders of its insufficiency. It's just riddled with flaws. And the most glaring flaw of all is in the fact that this is an annual event. It has to be repeated again and again and again. Every year the sacrifice was made and every year the people continued to be separated from God by their sins. They still couldn't actually enter the very presence of God and go into the Holy of Holies for themselves. And the book of Hebrews, which is really the New Testament's own commentary on Leviticus. So actually, that's the best commentary on Leviticus Read Hebrews as well this month, if you like. The book of Hebrews tells us why. Because, here's why it didn't really work. Here's why it's full of flaws. Here's why it had to be repeated. Because Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4, the law, which includes Leviticus, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And listen to Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ came... As high priest of the good things that are now here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And then Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, day of atonement, with blood that is not his own. But Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus's crucifixion was the ultimate day of atonement. There, the penalty for our sin was fully paid 
by means of his own blood. Like the first goat, he died in our place as our substitute, taking the punishment we deserved so that we could be cleansed from all our sin. And like the scapegoat, he bore our sins far away from us. He was cast out of God's presence, taking our guilt and shame so far away that now every single Christian believer can draw near to God through him. Listen to these words of Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And that is ultimately what the book of Leviticus was paving the way for. That's what the book of Leviticus is really all about. Well, it's time to conclude. Perhaps up to now, you viewed Leviticus as something to be avoided, like there's a, a big keep out sign hung across this book and you, you haven't dared venture in to read it yet. But I hope that this morning and this month, as we read it together, we'll see that this this book does not have a big keep out sign on it at all. In fact, its central message is come in because this book is an invitation from God to sinners to come into his presence through Jesus. This book was designed to make God's Old Testament people long for Jesus, to long for a better mediator, a better sacrifice, a better cleansing from sin. And this book is designed to make New Testament, God's New Testament people be overwhelmed with delight in the fact that Jesus has now come and to marvel again and again at what it means that we can draw near to God through him, that we can enter the most holy place, the real holy place in heaven and bask in the fullness of God's goodness and glory. May God bless us this month as we read it. Let's pray.